0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We discuss who really controls the internet and just how centralized and potentially vulnerable it's become. Plus, we've got the latest security letdowns from Windows 10 and the story of a questionably ethical hacker and Zomato's latest security breach. Plus, your awesome feedback, a rockin' roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on May thirty first, two thousand seventeen, and is brought to you by our three fine sponsors: DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining us is our famous co-host. Yes, that's right. It's the one, the only. It's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan.
1: Hello from the Great White North. I'm still in Ottawa.
0: Oh, look at you! You know Ottawa. It's just fun to say. Is it as fun to be there?
1: It is actually uh, awesome. I, I do miss the quiet hometown I do live in, and that I used to be able to walk from home to the coffee shop and whatnot. But oh, that's nice. The coffee shop I want to walk to here is a f- is a f- more than a few miles away, Ooh. and it, it it is a walking area, but it's not walking like a say small town. Right, that, that, you don't that get that iron. like
0: quaint little. Everything's kind of close, but you have like a stroll through a neighborhood to get
1: there. Thing. Yeah, w- once you get to the the Bridgehead Coffee Shop on Bank Street, it is a nice little neighborhood around there. For those that live in Ottawa, it's around uh, Ossington. It's just just over the Rita River, going north from Riverside, um, just before you get to Sunny Side. So that that's that's the area Bridgehead that I've been working from most days. And it is a nice neighborhood to walk around there. It is very nice. That sounds lovely.
0: Anything else new on in your side of the
1: world mm-hmm. there? Ah, did I say last night, Yes, in the previous show, did I say that I got my NS Updates working?
0: Uh, you mentioned it briefly, uh, but I don't think you had it working
1: yet. Yeah, it, it's working now. And then I created org. I created a website. Oh, fancy. And actually got the first... Um, uh, let's encrypt cycle working um, via DNS uh, O1 validation, but I did have to do the DNS one validation by hand uh, in order should, to get this than, first cert going. But it should so be automated Ac- after that, right? Eventually, yeah. So so last night I got it to I ran the Acme script, mm-hmm. uh, got a cert for home.org, a request. And then it produced the .txt file that I needed. And then I copy and pasted that into the zone files, checked them into SVN, and then checked them out on the server. And that part was all out of ma- That was the only manual part, was okay. the updating of the DNS. Everything else was automated through Acme.sh. <clears throat> nice. And once I had the cert, I then put up the website. And that website will then be used to publish all the certs that Let's Encrypt gives me. Mm-hmm. So all the clients just, you know, every they just
0: reference right there.
1: Every day or so, they fetch. It'll be on a delayed, so they're not all hitting the server at the same <laughs> right, time.
0: Yeah, right. A splay there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interesting. It so, sounds like you're
0: having a lot of fun with Let's Encrypt. Honestly,
1: it it, it is interesting. I'm d- doing doing some things that I haven't tried before, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to keep it automated so I never touch it. Yeah, yeah. And thinking of what thinking of what. Uh, what things to monitor and i'm i'm sure (laughs) pardon me i'm sure i'm going to wind up doing this for work somewhere so this all coming yeah it's a skill set
0: you build it now you play with it now and you know surely in the future i mean that's kind of the promise right it's like once you've got this down you understand the ins and the outs that it makes it really simple to go add encryption Mm -hmm. somewhere else down the line
1: and i put The creation of certs.unixathome.org in Ansible. So that all runs off Ansible now. Except for the the cert. The cert itself has to be loaded up manually first. So the key always gets copied to the web server manually. And then when you get a new cert, you only publish the cert. You never publish the key. right? It's just an easier way of doing it. That makes sense.
0: Awesome. Well, that, that makes sense. We'll, we'll have to do, uh, once you get everything finalized, you you know, you know come kind of yes. to the end of this journey. I think it would
1: make a yes. great deep dive for the oh, yeah. show. It'll be a lot of fun to talk uh, about that.
0: Awesome. I'll have to do some too. Maybe we can coordinate because I want to, uh, I have played with it a little bit, but really only on the like yeah. super easy, you know, put it up on some droplets. Mm-hmm. Thing. I haven't mm-hmm. dug deep into yeah. my own network infrastructure yet.
1: If you've only got one or two websites, you really just want to do it on each website. Right custom just for that um, cert. But if you've got 20 or 30 websites yeah. and you want them, you don't want to be doing them. Right.
0: Once you're or managing uh, like an organization type situation.
1: Yeah. I, I didn't want to deploy 20 instances of scripts. I wanted just one. Right.
0: Yeah, I'm exactly. still going to
1: have to have scripts on each one, but it, it should be generic.
0: Awesome. <clears throat> All right. Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I'm excited to hear more and uh, see how that story develops let's jump right into our main segment today. First up, we've got a very interesting story about who controls the internet, analyzing global threats using property traversal graphs. I'll just say it right now. kind of a graph nerd. I like graphs. They're a lot of fun. But tell us more about what's going on in this interesting paper.
1: Well, traditionally when you talk about who controls the internet you think you start to think about government resources and stuff like that or ISPs and um, you don't really think about hosting environments and um, say uh, um, bandwidth providers Um, but much like a lot of companies tend to buy up many different newspapers or many different TV stations so they control all the media that you see What's to stop a company from buying all all the bandwidth and just eventually holding a near monopoly on a bandwidth on the bandwidth and then deciding, hey, we don't want this going through, so we're just going to start blocking it. Um, That's not really what they're getting at here, but it is something I started thinking about it while reading all this. So they they started off with um, who controls the internet how much influence do they have and what would happen if one of those parties launched an attack or was compromised and was then used to launch an, an attack so previous works have looked at individual core services but this paper focuses on their interdependencies along attack propagation paths say that three times yeah, uh, do you know what an attack propagation path is? Um, I'm not really sure. I couldn't define it precisely, but I imagine you know the,
0: the route the attack takes the as you as you jump from from host to host or, or whatever.
1: Yeah, that that sounds like a likely likely explanation. So, what type of attacks are they talking about? There's there's three large scale incidents that um, got them to thinking about this. One was the the Canon DDoS attack in um, in 2015, which was caused by malicious JavaScript code injected into TCP connections crossing Chinese network borders. Ooh. I don't. I don't remember that. I don't either. But it sounds fascinating. Yep. The injected code aggressively requested resources from the DDoS targets. Then there was the Prism program in 2013. This was a NSA surveillance program with direct access to internet communications and stored information um and they they talk about while the direct involvement of popular tech providers is still unclear in this paper we make the assumption that establishing this type of collaboration is possible and can be voluntary or coerced by authorities by means of law and court orders so so yeah if if nsa has all these hooks Let's just assume it's CNSA NSA, has all yeah. these hooks in, into all these different providers. And somehow the NSA winds up with malware in it and it goes out, out through all these hooks that they have. Suddenly that gives this malware access to huge swaths of the Internet. Just bang, there you go. It's not like they have to start in one place and go from one to one to the next. They have inroads into the inner workings of all these ISPs. So, th- this third item is one that we, we've talked about before. It was the DDoS attack against Dyn.com right. in uh, October last year. Uh, the attack uh, caused customers, including Amazon, Netflix, Twitter, Reddit, and Spotify, to have outages on DNS. So, all these big companies choose a DNS provider. Um, you attack the DNS provider, and all these big companies' services are gone. You, you basically, if if you can't re- resolve the host names, you can't use the service, which means the service is offline.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that that event in particular really kind of showed you know we think about the internet as this big decentralized thing but in, mm-hmm. you know these days in reality there's a lot you know this one thing takes down amazon amazon takes down a million other things that all rely on it and then suddenly mm-hmm. half the internet that you actually use
1: is gone yep that amazon attack oh there is another one since then wasn't it mm-hmm. or am i am i misremembering about how um something just took out huge swaths of S3 stuff. But yes,
0: that was a separate event, but uh, it yeah. had the same effect right on the end where anyone using S3, mm-hmm. and in those affected
1: regions, suddenly the websites you use, eh, they're mm-hmm. gone. <clears throat> Pardon, I don't know what's going on here while I'm coughing today. It might be allergies. So the authors started by crawling the web, and where did they start? They went to Alexa. Now, I really know Alexa is being a domain provider, but they they provide other services as, as well. So they just took the top 100,000 domains and they started looking at the server-to-network information and adding in organizations and countries. And this led to a labeled graph which contained 1.8 million nodes. Now, that's a lot of nodes. Heck, yes. 350,000 of them were unique IP addresses. So that's roughly... Uh, I'm going to say one that six uh, that's six, uh, six nodes per IP address, roughly. Um, yeah, um, the nodes are then interconnected by four and a half million relationships. Now that's huge. That's that's just a very complex graph. So now 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 that they've mapped all this, they then start talking about what's the most promising target. And so before assessing attacks, we need to use our model to select entities that can either attack victims or the attackers. The selection criteria are based on metrics that reflect the popularity and the influence of entities. So they came up with six metrics, how to, how to figure out who to attack. So who hosts the most Alexa domains? It's the U.S. by far. It's 30,000 and wow. then next is the netherlands with 4200 4, and then everything else is, is sort of down from there. So and who who are the most powerful network operators? It turns out it's Cloudflare who have 7000 domains and then after that it's Amazon 1 with 2800, Amazon 2 and then Akamai yeah, each that with less than that makes
0: sense. Although it is kind of interesting that we live in a time now where Akamai is, you know, fourth down that list.
1: Well Cloudflare, I
0: had no idea they had so much. It's just huge. Yeah, they've, I've they've never, really grown monstrously in the last couple yeah.
1: of years. I've never used them, but I, but I know I know we we um have services on there. Yeah that that I've worked with services on there.
0: Yeah, it seems like they um, end up being the edge for like a huge proportion of especially like new startup sites or other, you know, recently new sites that are recently popular.
1: They must be doing something attractive. Yeah. Now um and next, I started talking about who has the most JavaScripting hosters, servers. I've never thought of someone just being a JavaScript hosting server. I, or is it just a server that has JavaScript? I
0: don't You know, I don't, they don't think make it's, that uh, quite clear here. I'm not sure I either. Think,
1: I think it's web- websites that, that have JavaScript in, installed on There
0: them. are, though, also uh, you know, JavaScript-oriented CDNs that specialize in distributing JavaScript... You know JavaScript sources, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's it either.
1: Well, the answer is the U.S. with forty-eight thousand, and then wow. then then everything else is below eight thousand. Like Germany, Netherlands, Germany, China. China is third, almost at so,
0: the same rank there as Germany. Yeah.
1: Yep, and not far behind the U.S. It's only down by five hundred now, and then by network auto- operator who has the most JavaScript, and it's Amazon One. Nearly twice as many as what Cloudfair, Cloudflare has. Uh, Amazon ones at 10,000. So they're just building up, you know, what's the most high value target? That's what all of this criteria is. What's the most high value target? And we might get criticized for why are you demonstrating all this information? Well, this isn't secret information. If you're thinking nefarious thoughts, you're thinking about this already. The reason that you bring this to someone's attention is so that they can use this information when they're deciding how to best defend. How, how do I choose where I'm going to put my resources? Am I going to put it on the one that you know has has the most impact, or am I going to distribute my resources across multiple multiple providers so that if, if one of them goes down? I'm only half affected or a third affected, depending on how you distribute your resources. So, don't, don't, don't criticize the message. Criti- um, use it to figure out what you're going to do in order to provide the best service for, for your clients. So, the next thing, they, that, that, that was JavaScript. So, let's look at mail servers. So, who hosts the most email servers? By far, it's the U.S., 41,000. 41,000 MXs. Whoa. I I actually find that's kind of low. I would have thought it was higher, but I guess there's a whole lot of domains that don't do their own MX. Yeah, that's true. They're they're all farming it out to someone else. So behind that, there's Germany and Great Great Britain. So it drops down to 12 at Germany and then halves to to 6,000 at Great Britain. And it's sort of, it's all 6,000 down to uh, slot number five. So... What network operator has the most MX records? It's Microsoft. I'm surprised by that. I wouldn't have thought Microsoft had that. You know,
0: I suppose Outlook's pretty big and they're their kind of exchange stuff. And I imagine mm-hmm. they have, there's a lot of like hosted exchange mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I wonder if that's maybe the connection. It seems like yeah. they've got kind of a, a special, you know, like Google. Google's got the consumer sphere with Gmail and mm-hmm. you know, Yahoo, mm-hmm. but Microsoft, I think, owns the enterprise in terms of hosted email.
1: Yep. Um, what's surprising here, o- OVH, I've heard of them, but I've never used yeah, them.
0: they're like a, a bare metal server vendor among other products.
1: Yep. Um, so it drops from 8500 for Microsoft down to 2- 2500 roughly for each of OVH and Hetzner. And then after that, it's UnitedL, which I've never heard of.
0: No, I haven't either. I do have a Hertzner machine myself, though, so I can 13. speak to them you a little ha- bit. You have a Witch, a Hertzner? Uh, yes, I do. Oh, you do? Yeah. Just kind of randomly, How- I fell into it. it. It was running FreeBSD for a while, although right now it's uh, running Ubuntu 16.04. How
1: long have you had this box?
0: Um, I guess for about the past year. I, for a while, I was sharing it with a, a friend. We were using it just kind of as a machine to you know to oh, do yeah. some experimentation on ZFS arrays.
1: Um, they do bare metal or VMs. Yes, or? It's
0: a bare metal machine. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of fun. I that's the most of my you know pretty much every other server that I uh, that I rent is a uh, is a VPS of some sort. Hmm.
1: I've I've got some. Most of my stuff is bare metal, but I've I've got something from Root BSG that that is a oh, VM. Yes. Yeah. Oh wait, no, that one may be a real box. I'm not sure. Um, and then I've got um something from. Digital DigitalOcean, and then the rest is is all real hardware. Ooh, fancy! Look at not, you. Yeah, well, I'm not not sure how I how I wound up there. <laughs> exactly. Um, so now, what's the next most important thing? Name servers. If you take out the name servers, nobody's getting anywhere. So the number of of name servers, the U.S. thirty four thousand name servers in the U.S. That's a, that's an incredible amount. Um, it sounds like a lot of little companies are running their own DNS. Um, and then and then it drops down to 6,700 for Germany. And, and then it's all below 4,000 for each of France, Great Britain, Netherlands. Um, to say three, I meant 4,000. Um, Canada. First time I've noticed Canada in these lists. It may have been, oh no, it was up there with MX records. <laughs> you 3, just want to be proud. Yeah, I'm not paying attention. Um, so who who runs the most name servers? It's OVH and Hetzner in second position, both with about 2,300 and Amazon's way down there. Well, not way down there. It's d- down there at about 1,900. Um, and Cloudflare, people don't use Cloudflare for NS like they do other places. Cloudflare only has 700. Um, and then GoDaddy, I would have thought they would have been higher up there I think, as well. Yeah, they've been around for a long time. All right. So I think we have, we are, remember when we were talking about JavaScript before? I think we have our answer about what those JavaScript uh, stuff was. Now they're over JavaScript providers. This metric measures the number of JS hosting servers Who authoritative name server is hosted in a given country and or network block. So, yeah, this must be the JavaScript actual hosting companies. And sadly to say, the United States has 42,000 JavaScript hosting providers. That's, sorry, 41,000. Then it drops to like 3,000 for Germany, Netherlands, and China. Now, if you convert that over to network operator, most of them are Amazon One by far, at 16,000. Interesting. And then then Cloudflare is at 5,000. I'm finding the distributions between country and network operator for the different services to be very interesting. Like, you would think that if you're using, say, um, Cloudflare for your website, you might also be using them for for your MX or your NS, but it's turning not to be the case. It seems like people think Well, I'm going to use this provider for for this particular service and this other provider for this other service.
0: I suppose in a way, maybe that's, you know, trying to hedge your bets and and increase your resiliency. I agree. It's distributing. Yeah. Um, It's better than we could have expected. You know, like you're saying, like you would imagine like, yep, all right, well, I've got my Amazon uh, EC2 instance. I'll use their, you know, edge services and CDNs and their
1: DNS and blah, blah, blah. I wonder what it would be like to have a hidden, ma- hidden DNS master and have two, servers with, two DNS servers with one provider and two DNS servers with another provider. And they all yeah. sync from your master. I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. It should just work. If they're both providing good service, mm-hmm. it would be transparent to anyone else.
0: Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: Someone's going to correct us. Exactly. Um, so where were we? NS Records, Cloudflare, Microsoft, Cloudflare, now we're further down. Uh, did I miss it? Uh,
0: uh, we were just on G- on JS again.
1: JS, okay. Network provider, Amazon yep. one there. There we go. So who controls the most email server name servers? So the previous one was, J- was name servers for JavaScript operators, okay? That's what we just talked about. I didn't make that clear. So th- these are it measures the number of JavaScript hosting servers whose authoritative name server is hosted in a given country or by a given network operator. So all they're looking at is how can we take out the name servers that power the JavaScript servers? So That's what that last metric was. So this next metric is for mail server name servers. So that's who hosts the name servers for all the mail servers. And again, it's the United States at 28,000. And then cutting at that in half, the Netherlands at 14,000. I'm surprised that the Netherlands... <laughs> yeah, it's kind of ha- a random appearance in this list. ...has so many MX name servers. That's an incredible list. Maybe we'll... F- who, who is hosting there and why? That's interesting. So then... And then it's Ireland at 11,000. That's also a huge <laughs> yeah. number.
0: So... I wonder if no. it's all related to, um, you know, concerns about being able to access those emails mm-hmm. or wanting them to be st- stored mm-hmm. in places with, uh, you know, yeah. nice laws in that regard. It, we'll, have to, we'll have to dig more on that one. That's interesting.
1: So now taking the same numbers and, and looking at them by network operator, we're again with uh, 11,500 at Microsoft. So there are eleven and a half thousand name servers hosted by Microsoft that control the DNS for mail servers, mm. and then it's cloud fl- drops down to Cloudflare at roughly half that, and then Amazon one it drops to two thousand, and then there's a bunch in the one thousand to um, two thousand range, down to Dyn DNS at position one two three seven, yeah, so. Hmm. So, now that you've gathered all this information, who are you going to attack first? Well, they say, now we're in the position to evaluate the potential impact of three different attacks. Distribution of malicious JavaScript content, email sniffing, and a DDoS attack against a core service provider. In each case, a target can be selected by consulting the tables above. Oh, how easy. Sounds very straightforward to me. So, Let's pretend, theoretically, that you now wish to distribute malicious JavaScript I content. definitely do. I really do. Uh, I'm sure you do. The authors consider three ways to do this. Direct compromise, uh, injecting malicious JavaScript, or re- redirecting requests for JS content via compromised name resolution. And, and people underestimate the, the, the importance of securing your DNS. If... If you're a big hosting provider and people are loading all this jQuery from your servers and suddenly you change the DNS so they're not requesting it from the real server but requesting it from a malicious server, then you can give them any content you want. And it can be pretty nasty. Yeah, and it just gets
0: blindly executed
1: by the client. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because the HTTPS, well, allegedly works.
0: Yeah, exactly. exactly.
1: Mm. Ugh. So, they they have a nice graph here to say how many Alexa domains that can be reached by the first two of these. Um, now, scrolling down, the attack results show that the countries that countries can be very powerful attackers. For example, the United States holds forty hosts, forty seven thousand JavaScript JavaScript hosters which could which could distribute which could distribute malicious code to about 16% of the top 100,000 Alexa domains. Mm, I'm not, I'm, I, you, you would have to do a lot in order to dis- distribute all that. Th- this is all highly theoretical. But yeah, if the U.S. government had the power to basically take over all these domains and decide to distribute this, well, that's what would happen. Um, But the next thing they start talking about is what about JavaScript inclusion over unprotected connections? I'm guessing they mean HTTP. Right. Um, So over HTTP, it's very easy or very straightforward. Right. If you change the DNS records... Because then they're just going to p- pull whatever it is they've got. Yeah, it doesn't there's no matter there's no the checking,
0: right? You're just yeah. uh, it's just a dumb pipe. Hey, shove some JS, I, some HTML, and go for it.
1: Yeah, uh, at least if you're doing it over HTTPS, they then have to forge or steal a certificate, yeah. or rather the certificate key, because um, certificates are always public. It's the certificate key that you got to keep under cover. Um, so. It, it, the attack result is the number of websites, including a resource hosted on a server, whose name server is colluding or compromised. And that's the key. Right. You you don't have to compromise the domain the the website. You just have to compromise the name server or get the hosting company, the name server, to say, "Yeah, we'll we'll do this for you. Why not? You're a good friend. Here, have this connection, oh, in. this is fine." Exactly so yeah it's so th- they conclude here that the united states google and dyn dns stand out here because the united states is is the the top by number of dns redirects and i don't know what the second half of the table is i'm getting confused by this now
0: there's a lot so, of tables
1: yes so i'm i'm now down to the email sniffing part. So, let's say we want to acquire a large number of emails, and an attacker can rely on various techniques, but in the paper, they're only going to look at two. One is by acquiring them direct from the email server. The second is by redirecting an email client towards a malicious mail server, and we'll accept the email, keep a copy, and forward it on. And that's that's as simple as you can do. So. How do you do this? What you do is you go in and you change the MX records. Now they don't go into details, but how do how you do that? But if you have a presence in, in these companies, you can easily just insert um, uh, an MX server in there, have the IP address reassigned to you. That that's a simple way of doing it. Um, if you have the collusion of the uh, of the DNS provider. Um, now, basically, they claim that the United States alone could acquire email for 25% of the most popular websites. So, that's a, that's a lot of email. So, that's 25% of the top 100,000, uh, 250,000, So, they get all the email for 250,000 websites. Yikes. That that's a that's a lot of stolen data. Yeah, that really is. Not all of it's going to be useful, but some of it will. So they're just going through this. Assume, there's a lot of assumptions on this. So so don't start being afraid that this is actually happening. It may be, but I don't think it is. Um, but the, the results. Let, let's jump down to the results. Our results show that already just a few players may have an extensive power. 14 countries and 14 autonomous systems can, directly or indirectly, affect the security of about 23% of websites. In addition, our results show that little has been learned from past attacks. For example, 70% of JavaScript inclusion is still done over unprotected connections, i.e. HTTP, URLs as opposed to HTTPS, which can be used to mount the Great Cannon attack. I'm going to have to look that up. I don't remember what that Great Cannon attack was. Do do, do you have any memory of it? I I don't. don't. Let's see. So basically, yes. If you can do something over HTTPS, do it over HTTPS. There's no reason to do HTTP anymore with sensitive information. If you're just passing out plain text it isn't used as input to anything else then fine do that but if you're f- fetching http if you're fetching javascript definitely do it over https
0: yeah exact oh very much true okay so here is some information about the great cannon of china is an attack tool that is used to launch distributed denial of service attacks on websites by intercepting massive amounts of web traffic and redirecting them to targeted websites so it sounds like it's a facility related to their the the great so-called great firewall of china where they can then you know rewrite attacks redirect them to send yep. massive amounts of traffic towards tar- targets yikes
1: nasty stuff
0: yeah exactly so um but that makes sense well, right? Like, so if you can uh, you know if you have unencrypted unsecured javascript then yeah you just send some javascript down that says like hey tell your browser open a whole bunch of connections to this guy over here and now you've got a big distributed ddos <laughs> Takes.
1: It's as simple as that. It really is. I
0: mean, you could probably do it in a couple hours if you had, you know, you had the technology behind you.
1: So, so I I don't really know how to, how to interpret this. Do you, do you wind up going with countries that are l- less influential, or do you wind up going w- with more obscure providers? Or if if you're a big company, you need the big guns of other big companies to provide your infrastructure. So. I'm not really sure what the bigger companies can do here that are using these services. If they are uh, using the hosting ho- hosting infrastructure of somewhere else, someone else, you've really got to rely on them on the integrity and um, honesty of the other group.
0: Yeah, and you get these kinds of catch 22s right? Where you need you're already using the systems, it makes it super easy for you to continue to uh-huh. use their services. There's a huge uh-huh. incentive to do that. And at some point, yeah, like you're talking about, like sometimes, you know, if you're of a certain scale, you need someone also of that scale to be able to provide the services that you need.
1: Um, Imagine how hard it is for you as an individual to swap operating systems. Yeah, right. No, I don't want to change this. So imagine you're a big company with all these, all this infrastructure built around one provider. The inertia is just magnified. Yep. And then you decide to change it. Yeah. Oh, gosh it's not gonna work no it's not
0: yikes well this is kind of interesting just from the you know i think we've the analog as it strikes me is kind of you know doing threat analysis against um you know power generation systems any kind of that kind mm-hmm. of infrastructure at a national level this seems like the same kind of analysis but applied to the internet so it's useful you know even if there's not a direct takeaway or a you know, this is exactly what we need to do. It's, I think it's useful just to have a better understanding of, you know, what are we getting ourselves into and how much are we really relying on just a few autonomous systems?
1: Yeah, because if I was an evildoer, I'd start, and I had lots of money, I'd start buying up all these companies that provide things. Yeah. And then then, then eventually send in the evildoers to, to do evil things. It wouldn't be that difficult.
0: Definitely. And we just have the slow, you know, the the more conglomerated we get, then the easier it is for, you know, evildoers with privileged access or who, you know, you can then just try to shut down one organization and suddenly that's a huge swath of the internet. It's
1: gone. Yikes. All
0: right. Well, anything else you want to talk about before we uh, move on? No. Awesome. All right. Well, if you're now scared of the big guy, head on over to our first sponsor tonight. That's our friend at Ting. Ting mobile that makes sense. It really is a smarter way to do mobile. If you head on over to techsnap.ting.com, you can get started. You'll get a $25 service credit. And you you might be thinking $25. Yeah, okay, that sounds that sounds all right. But wait until I tell you. Prices at Ting start at just $6 a month. Click on that rates button right there on their home page. That'll pop you over to their wonderful rates page. You'll see. So, Ting things start at $6 a month. One line, $6 a month. That's that's it. Then then it's pay for what you use so you don't use any minutes that's zero dollars a month you don't use any text messages that's zero dollars a month and then you just kind of choose you know all right yeah well i use about a, a, a gig of data a month your monthly bill would be only 22 dollars. i mean yes yeah there's some taxes and fees and other things but ting can't do anything about that so just we're not going to talk about that right now ting charges you 22 dollars a a month. That's amazing. Your service credit that could pay for your first month of service and it does for a huge number of people, myself included. Some other great things about Ting. Instead of having all these, you know, overages, contracts, early termination fees, those just don't exist at Ting. You sign up, you start paying your $6 a month that activates your line, then you just pay for what you use. You don't have to worry about trying to, you know, plan 6 months a year at a time thinking, "Well, What's the peak usage? I might need it a month. I don't want to pay the overage charges. I'll make sure I get. Yeah, I think five gigs a month. That should that should do it. For me. No, that's crazy. That's crazy. You, you probably one. You probably don't use that much if you have Wi-Fi anywhere in your life, except for maybe a couple times a year. So why are you paying for all that excess capacity? It doesn't make sense. Just jump on over to TechSnap.Ting.com. Get started with mobile that makes sense. There's no early termination fees. There's no contracts. All the extras you've come to expect from a modern, sophisticated phone plan. Things like, you know, things like three-way calling. Things like tethering built right in. There's no extra tethering fee. There's no special tethering data that you have to pay more for or or your restricted access to. No. Ting's not about that. They don't want to mess around. They don't have gimmicks. They're not trying to become your next media platform. They're not trying to become the next giant corporation that rules America. It's just not their way. But they're they're dedicated to good customer service, a simple, intuitive dashboard, really the best dashboards in the game, an awesome, awesome mobile app, and customer service that has real humans ready to talk to you, ready to make sure that you have the best experience possible with a service provider. They've got both GSM and CDMA, so whatever's better in your area, Tink's got what you need. And they've been doing it for a long time. Ting understands they're cord cutters, they're nerds just like us, and they've got the phone plan that makes sense for you. So head on over to techsnap.ting.com. what lets Ting know you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program, and it'll get you started with a $25 service credit. Ting's great for a number of things. Just use it as a backdoor to your network, an extra phone in the car when you're on camping trips, or just as a backup device. Hey, you break your main phone, boom, you got your Ting line ready. Thank you, Ting, for sponsoring the TechSnap program all righty then on to our next story of the day looks like we're heading over to twitter with some windows security news this is interesting not something that comes up all the time on this program but i think it affects a large number of our viewers probably a larger number than we might think
1: well i've never used windows 10 enterprise i've used windows 7 at work but it's not the enterprise it's not an enterprise edition Mm, okay um But basically, what this chap was doing was experimenting with the Windows 10 privacy settings. So he would turn something off and see what would happen. He he would block it through the privacy settings or disable something and then monitor the, the, the network traffic to see if stuff was happening that shouldn't be happening. And lo and behold, he found time and time again that stuff was happening that he didn't think should be happening. Some of which is kind of surprising, and we'll get to that in terms of um, he removed an app, the app got reinstalled, and firewall rules got added. He didn't do that. So we'll get into this. So here, he disabled Teradu, and IPv6. I don't know what Teradu is, but he can clearly see using, um, there it is. If you blow it up, he can see that Teradu is disabled, and you can see that it is still going out to Google Analytics and doing stuff. So, why? Um, It's a system with a minimal software install, all default Windows Store apps removed, and nothing else is running on it. So, just basically, he's tried to get back to a bare-bones Windows uh, 10 Enterprise VM. So... Here he has Smart Screen disabled, but Smart Screen is still connecting to Smart Screen. Um, and Teradu, I'm told, is an IPv6 to IPv uh, IPv4 to IPv6 tunneling software. Right. Yes. Sorry, that just came in. So there's another another example here, and the, the this uh, Twitter stream is just. Filled with examples of something that's disabled, but it's still connecting out. So I'm not really sure if you disable something, does it actually stop it? You would think if something was disabled, it wouldn't be able to run. I'm sure it's not the case where you've disabled something, but it's still running. So of course it keeps trying to reach out. I don't, I don't think it would be that simple. So in next case, he has telemetry disabled, plus the tracking related services are disabled plus a few reg hacks, but it's still connecting. A uh, allowed telemetry is definitely disabled and application telemetry is enabled. Turn off application telemetry <laughs> Yeah, that's some funny verbiage enabled. there. That's terrible. Um, and here you can see that he has every policy set to not sync settings, plus he has a sync related services disabled, but something is still connecting out. The next example he gives is he has error reporting disabled, and the service is disabled, but it still connects out. And you can see the connections going out there to uh, watsondatamicrosoft.com at uh, aka DNS. What do you net? bet that's so our friend at Akamai? Com- mm-hmm. Wow. Well, what about KMS validation? That's disabled, and it's still connecting wow. through to there. So, And then he goes on to say, every possible setting to block connections to Microsoft, except for updates, here are a bunch of advertising-related connections. And he, he just shows this big list, half of which seem to be advertising-related. So during that time, there were there were a list of apps that connected to the Internet. All the ad-related connections were from the system. So there's a bunch of other stuff running, but everything that went out was the system going out there. It wasn't other apps. It was the system. So his conclusion, and this was done on the 21st, which is about 10 days ago, it seems like Microsoft doesn't honor its own group policy settings but the big problem here is that people will use third-party apps instead of just disabling stuff to block all this stuff from happening, and they will probably inadvertently block security-related stuff. Because if you're trying to use the system tools and the system tools don't work as expected, you're going to use a third-party tool to achieve the same thing, and something's going to go wrong. People will will block automatic updates, which is going to lead to more compromises, which is going to lead to more... Massive DDoS, stuff like that. They've, they've, If this is all true, they've really got to improve it. Because if you disable something, it should be disabled. There shouldn't be anything going out like this. He, uh, Mark Burnett, that's whose that's tweets we're reading, by the way. Sorry for not mentioning that sooner. If you search for Windows 10 on GitHub, the first few pages of results are tools to defeat spying. Yikes. Now, is this spying by Microsoft? Is that what they're referring to? Is this or is this third-party spying?
0: No, I believe I believe it's the, the first-party spying. You know, tools that will automatically set all those registry settings or group policy settings mm-hmm. that we're seeing maybe are not effective. But I think that you know, like Windows 10 configure, configuration tools to try to mm-hmm. enhance your privacy.
1: Okay. So this is a tweet that I alluded to earlier. I deleted Paint 3D and Microsoft silently reinstalled it and added a fire rule to allow it to connect out. Oh, wow. Look at that. That's really nasty. Wow. So, I, I can, why, would you re, why would the OS reinstall it? And why would when the OS is... In, I, I can see this is a convenience factor trying to make it easier for users who who have blocked it, when they go to install it, they automatically enable it. Right. Sure, but when you're trying to make it e- easy for um, non-technical people, you're making it impossible for technical people. Because that's definitely something you don't expect. No,
0: not. If you no, remove something, really
1: you don't expect it to be reinstalled. And th- there is a big disclaimer here, which we probably should have mentioned at the start. Mark states that this was my initial testing. It wasn't totally controlled or documented and still needs to be verified. So there may be a lot more that comes out of, as a result of this, but we'll see. We'll see. It is interesting to to find out yeah, it what is. he found. And I mean, yeah, it's kind it's, of... Uh...
0: I think especially like the ad stuff to me, it really just shows the, it almost speaks to something larger, like the way the tool sets we have, you know, and the difference between Windows 10 and Windows 7, especially just in that, you know, Microsoft internally has adopted a lot of these like web first um, analytics based data gathering techniques that we see so pr- predominantly on the web, but you don't really think about it at the OS layer. You know, I think we're all kind of used to, especially in the you know open source world of like, yeah, okay, well, my operating system... It's really just concerned with being my operating system, running the hardware, exposing Mm -hmm. interface, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm syscall layer, all that. But boy, no, when you see these, like, you know, it it really seems like that, you know, analytics and all that is really bundled tightly into the core of their latest operating system. And that's kind of, I mean, it's not surprising in any way, but it's a little disheartening.
1: I wonder if someone has done similar for Apple.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. That's
1: because up. I know when you set up an Apple box, it says, "Can we collect anonymous stats?" Mm-hmm. And it'd be interesting to see how much data is is going out over the ru- over the wire. Yeah,
0: and see that's mm-hmm. part of the problems here too, right? Is like when you if you can't trust those things, I would like to be able to submit anonymous data to help improve mm-hmm. the products that I use. But if I don't trust mm-hmm. the parties who are using that data or gathering it to respect my consent and my wishes, then I'm really just you know everyone's going to start saying no, and developers don't get the kind of feedback they're interested in i say no <laughs> yeah no don't think that's fair i mean that's uh, that's that's, that's your right
1: yeah i i just don't know if i can trust them
0: yeah right see exactly that's exactly and, the problem and
1: apparently even if you disable it it still goes out
0: <laughs> right so it doesn't matter you really just clicked yes it's fine it always clicks yes yeah
1: yeah yeah so uh it'll be interesting to see where this goes if anywhere yeah um
0: Maybe this is some good feedback items that people have experienced with the, you know, Windows 10 and those things and or some of their favorite tools to uh, attempt to disable those settings. I'm sure we'd be interested in hearing about them.
1: Yeah, I want to know more. If you know more feedback, please. Thank you. Exactly.
0: All right. Well, if you are sick of talking about Windows, let's just jump right over to our next sponsor this evening. That's our friends over at IX Systems ix systems is the hardware service provider you wish you had heard about years ago if you you know you've got a windows box at home you're, you're feeling fed up you really want some powerful unix in your life going over to ix systems maybe you've heard about the brand new i9 coming from intel you can bet that ix and their awesome relationship with those incredible intel processors will be able to build you some rigs with that just as soon as it's available not only that, they've got a huge staff of talented sales engineers standing by ready to help you out. They want to form a partnership to make sure that you understand that you know they know your server should be custom. It deserves to be custom that you have a workload that you know matters to you that's important to your business or project and and they understand that they want to work with you to make sure that you know you don't you don't have to be the be all end all hardware guru here. You don't need to understand exactly. Exactly how how a SAS expander works. You don't have to understand how many top of rack switches you need. IX System is here to help. They've got people who have been in this business for a long time. Really knows the ins and outs of hardware, software, open source software. If you head on over to techsnap.ixsystems.com, you'll find their definitive guide to buying hardware for open source systems. This is a great white paper you can hand out. You know, if you if you are in charge of procuring new hardware, or maybe you just you know know some people who do. Maybe they're fed up with terrible support cycles you know big box companies with bad support confusing interfaces really just a hassle to work with you don't have to put up with that you know especially if you're using one of those vendors they're just reselling the big name big name products they don't have any real value add go to ix systems you'll have an entirely different experience ix systems build these systems customs for you so they can really support them in a way that really no one else can you know things like true white glove support they make sure that you know, any hardware that you're going to use has been burned in. That especially matters for hard drives. They do thorough testing to ensure that if that hard drive is going to fail in you know, its first, first couple months of life, that that's going to happen before it leaves iX's hands. And if you want, they'll send you the server ready to go, completely set up, configured, just with the software you want, ready to be stuck in a rack, turned on, plugged in, and boom, your new server is ready to go. If you check out their website, you'll see some of the huge names that they work with—people like Disney, Sony, NASA, Berkeley, Adobe, Semantic, GM. They have, you know, they have experience building petabytes of storage. So whether you just need, you know, the very popular FreeNAS Mini, which is a great solution if you just need a new NAS or backup server for your home or home office, to things like the TrueRack, which is a, you know, a huge scalable system ready for just about any enterprise's storage needs and you don't have to worry about being locked into one of these crazy proprietary systems where you have to keep buying all their own components no that's one of the best things about ix systems they work with the open source community they're huge sponsors of the open zfs project they understand that zfs is really the file system of the future it's the best file system for enterprise storage or just for you know or just for home use you can see that if you head on over to their blog you'll see just how involved they are the community you'll see that they're They're always going to different conferences. They've got great tips here about combating WannaCry and other ransomware with OpenZFS snapshots. And it just goes to show IX, they're a member of the community. And above that, they're just a great company. So head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Get started. Go start a conversation. And I'm sure you'll end up with some hardware you'll never forget. Thank you to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right. That brings us to our final main topic today. And that's some news from Zomato tell us more
1: i had never heard of them before i did not know zomato did you i I was not familiar with the
0: name was kind of vaguely familiar um so what are they to people who like perhaps ourselves who are not familiar Uh,
1: oh now you're asking really hard questions yes that's right i am um i did look this up and i think it's a if i recall correctly and i'm looking it up again it's related to food uh find the best restaurants, cafes and bars in Ottawa is what comes up my mind. So they're using G O I P to know that I'm in Ottawa, but basically it's, you know, luxury dining. Here's your sweet tooth. You want super sushis, kick-ass burgers, or what, what's trending this week. I do want those things. I'm sure you do. Um, And then they go on and talk about the top reviewers in Ottawa, the top photographers, the top bloggers, stuff like that. So it, I'm not exactly sure of their model, but they do have a, a link here: products for businesses. Get more out of your business without losing focus. So basically, they can claim their listing to get advanced analytical and engagement tools. So it sounds like they're set, setting up. Um, it, it's sort of like a concentrated Google for uh, businesses in a particular area, and I think that's their data model. Uh, sorry, their, their marketing model. I'm not familiar enough with them but that's not the point uh the point is not what they do it's what happened to them uh and this blog post that they came out with about a week ago about a security uh breach that occurred and what i find interesting about this security breach is how the breach occurred and who did it um, and why now, traditionally, when you have data breaches, people are just stealing data to steal data, uh, say, as part of identity theft. Um, but there were a couple of very simple procedures here, and it will reinforce for you why you should be using a password manager and having a password different on every location and why two-factor authentication is so important. If Either two of those bits, uh, different password or two-factor authentication, had been in place, this breach wouldn't have happened. But all right, so company has been breached. This is their post that comes out and say, Here, "Here's what really happened." Uh, this is their close to full, disclo- full disclosure of what went on, and hopefully others can learn from this. So they they refer to the previous uh, blog posts. And part of their infrastructure that was used to store users' information was breached by an ethical hacker. Okay, possibly ethical. That's debatable. You'll see later. The data downloaded as a result of this breach fa- contained five data points for 17 million users. Specifically, name, email address, numeric user ID, username, and password hashes. The password hashes leak was a little more contained and was only a subset of six and a half million users. So so roughly, if you're on Zamata, uh, chances are it's almost 50-50, a little less than 50-50 that, that your password uh, hash was downloaded. All the other users were either Google or Facebook users, and they didn't have password information for those users. So in a way, this is... Good, but not really. So, the hacker had posted these data points on a dark web marketplace. We were lucky we could get in touch with a person hacker in good time. As it turned out, the hacker was a security researcher, an ethical hacker, who would put up up the data for sale to get our attention and to teach us a lesson. I find that highly questionable ethical hackers would not download all that information. Generally, you download one or two pieces of information and then stop and then do a full disclosure to the people that you've discovered this from, right. and take it from there. You don't download 17 million instances of data.
0: It's just waiting to be abused if you if you yeah. have it
1: there, right? You and, don't.
0: And they don't really mention here at all, you know, at least yet. If you know, if they if this person had tried to reach out to them before posting it, because like you'd, you'd think there are easier communication channels if you wanted to, uh, you know, alert a company yeah. than just starting to post it on the darknet.
1: Yeah. Um. To teach us a lesson that that comes out, that's just wrong. Right, teach someone a lesson.
0: That's not the kind of verbiage that we would expect from a you know an ethical security an ethical researcher. hacker, yeah.
1: right? So he or she only wanted us to launch a good bu- bug bounty program on Hacker One. Is he or she wanted to make sure that security researchers are rewarded well for their time? That's blackmail. That's a, what's the difference between blackmail and extortion? Uh, I forget. Someone will tell us. So the hacker also shared the database with us and took the sales link down once we promised to launch the bug bounty program. So, yeah, this is ex- uh, blackmail, basically. He, the hacker also agreed to destroy their, the data at their end immediately. Well, how do you prove how that you destroyed know? the data? You, you, you just don't. Whereas if all they'd taken is, is one or two examples of the data and to say, here, here's how I did it. Fix it. That's entirely different from taking all this data down. I, I, the use of the word ethical, I think, is being forced upon them given their position. Um, because I wouldn't call call this hacker yeah. ethical.
0: It sounds like they've maybe here you know negotiated or reached like a, you know, a good outcome or a better outcome, and that they're being yeah. perhaps overtly charitable or are in this position. Yeah. Well,
1: you watch now. I'll become the target of this <laughs> ethical hacker. That's right. Pardon. So this is the interesting part. The first that that was interesting. What comes up next is how they got in. So this started in November twenty fifteen when another web hosts user database was leaked online with plain text passwords. How do you leak plain text passwords? They weren't stored as hashes, yep. they were stored in plain text. One of our developers had his personal hosting account with the service. As a result of that, his email address and password became publicly available. Unfortunately, the developer was using the same email and password combination uh... on GitHub. So if he had changed it, if he'd used a password manager, this wouldn't have happened. Back then, when the passwords leaked, we were not using two factor authentication on GitHub. We had been using two factor authentication on GitHub for the last few months. Well, so basically, the hacker was able to use the developer's login to get into the GitHub account and review one of the code repositories to which the developer had access. So basically, uh, the company stored some of their code on GitHub, which is publicly accessible. So this happened sometime last year, but for some reason, the hacker only exploded the code very recently. Hmm. So... Getting access to a part of the code didn't give the hacker direct access to the database. Our systems are only accessible from a specific set of IPs. But the hacker was able to scan through the code and ended up exploiting a vulnerability in the code to access the database via remote code execution. This bit is very vague. I'm not not really sure what happened here. Right, there's
0: a lot that could be going on. But it sounds like that privileged
1: access let him find, you know, some sort of… he found a vulner- vulnerability. The vulnerability was already there, right. so he didn't he didn't inject anything. The piece of code which was vulnerable was part of a deprecated system and hadn't been modified for a few years now. Of course, so it was deprecated, which means it was due to be replaced. Please don't use it, but it was still online. Yes,
0: I think that's a okay. surprisingly common thing at uh, oh yeah, yeah, a number oh, yeah. of companies, unfortunately.
1: Yep. So. Having access to the code, should, they, they say here, quote, yes, someone has some of our code and that's a risk, unquote. Well, having the code shouldn't make it riskier. It should give people information about your system and how to look at targeting it. But knowing the code itself should not make your system vulnerable because look at open source. Yeah. SSH depends upon that. Yeah. And okay, so. Now, going down here. So in hindsight, what helped us contain the extent of the breach? Our use of multiple environments, each segregating and containing a part of our business, ensured the data breach was limited to only one part of our database, and the hacker did not gain access to all the various databases used by different businesses. So it sounds like they store different stuff in different places and grant access based upon need, which sounds good. Yeah, that does sound good. Additionally, we had made two factor authentication on GitHub mandatory a few months back, which cut off the hacker's access to the uh, account that they got get into. So they were working off an no old code base, which has significantly changed over the past few months, limiting the extent the hacker could access. So that's not. That's just coincidental. I don't think that's really something that they did that slowed them down. So, then this one's interesting. Keeping lines of communication open with the hacker helped us understand the motive of the breach and address the very reasonable demands. This in turn led to the hacker cooperating with us by pulling down the sales listing from the dark web. So, apparently the sales listing was just a bluff to get their attention, and presumably the hacker never intended to sell this data. But they still had that data, and that data could have easily been taken over by someone else, and we're only taking their word for it that nothing happened. Let's just wait and see a few months and see whether or not this data actually turns up in the public domain. So, we have good network restrictions in place, which ensured that our servers weren't compromised. So, the servers weren't compromised, but the data was pulled down. Which also means that our payment processing systems, which run on a separate secure environment, were never compromised. And they submitted a compliance report, blah, 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 to Visa on the payment gateway partner. So basically, I'm not finding what helped contain the extent those those things sort of make sense. But basically... I think the only reason he didn't go further is, is because the exploit didn't allow him to look at anything other than that database. And that's all that there was in that database. I think everything else was just unlucky. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that these things help contain the extent of the breach. Because 16 million rows being downloaded somewhere else is rather interesting. How, how, how are you able to download 16 million row, rows remotely? I want to know more about that side of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's um, perhaps a sizable data transfer
1: as well. Right. So um, what's next? We are also in the process of introducing a monetary reward bug bounty program on HackerOne very soon. So thanks for deleting the data and we'll get this bug bounty in place very soon. Um, last thing, we have since been advised by multiple industry experts to take some action against the developer in order to set an example and influence public perception. Now, they said developer there. The developer They must mean the developer who, who used the same I password so, credentials. Yeah. We know that this mishap is on the organization and not an individual. Instead of pinning the responsibility on someone, we're going to use this as a learning opportunity for all of us. Yeah, if they just blamed the developer, the developer only gave someone access to the code. That didn't give them access to the system. Yeah. The guy then read the code, found a vulnerability. If anything, what's at fault is the code, which is not necessarily the developer's code.
0: Right. You need to get it's blamed the com-
1: there. It's the company's code. And the code should – the code really, the company should have found the error in the code and fixed the vault.
0: Yeah, and, and- – to, to that point as well like i think you know something we've seen like that i've been rather pleased with when we were talking about um like joyance outage the other the other week as well as the recent mm-hmm. aws outage etc you know that that really when these sorts of things happen it's almost always a failure in process rather than you know there may be individual failures that happen but that can only happen yep. when you don't have a robust process that can account for those things because there will always be human yep.
1: mistakes yep um like that guy the, what was that giant where the guy shut down.
0: Yes, they the rebooted head,
1: the, a whole the head, data the, center. The, the head node, of the data center, would shut everything else down. He only meant to shut down one node, and uh. he shut down the master node. Yeah, what a sickening feeling that no person must have had in their stomach. That was yeah. a
0: great video, though. We'll have to maybe post it up again because that was a uh, that was. I think mm-hmm. the whole map audience would enjoy it.
1: <laughs> You're talking about the video by um, uh, Brian Cantrell. Yes, that one exactly. (sighs) (sighs) Exactly.
0: All right. Uh, Anything else you want to talk about here about uh, Zomato and their problems with this ethical
1: hacker? I would have liked to have seen more technical details about how they get in. I mean, this is sort of very high level, and they're not actually they're not actually giving us any details as as to what was actually exploited. And how it's actually been fixed. I know they're trying to be cautious about revealing further information, which will help other people break in. But no, we, we've seen more detail in other bug reports about about how something worked. So.
0: Yes. Well, and it seems like at least part of the problem here, you know, when you when your code gets designed in a way where you assume that, you know. That you can use its privacy as security, then yeah, you can't. You're in this position where you can't share those things. And if someone does get access, now that really is privileged access. Yes, and belays maybe you know yes. poor poor management of secrets or other things. So hmm. it's uh, yeah, hopefully definitely. hopefully will be a good lesson for other companies out there.
1: Yeah, but we can't. But we, the, there's
0: not enough info to, for it to be.
1: Give us more information. I'd love to see an update. And if anyone is listening. From Z- Zomato, please give us more details, please.
0: Exactly. Awesome. All right, well, with that, uh, let's jump on over to our final sponsor this evening, and that's our friends over at DigitalOcean.com. Maybe you're encouraged by uh, by some of the troubles here. You want to start uh, learning how to become an ethical hacker yourself, perhaps more ethical than in our last segment. One of the best places to start Ron, with a system that you can just play with yourself is is DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is cloud computing designed for developers they make it so easy to get started with a vps of your very own not only a vps but it's based on real kvm virtualization they've got 40 gigabit e right to the hypervisor ssds throughout and most recently a ton of new awesome enterprise friendly options things like monitoring load balancing high cpu droplets expandable block storage and private networking between container between droplets in the same data center. All of these things and more make it so easy to get started. Plus, when you use our promo code snapocean, that'll get you a $10 credit. And prices at DigitalOcean start at just $5 a month. Yeah, that's right. I said it. It's real. $5 a month. For that $5 a month, you get 512 MB of memory, a core 1-core processor, 20 gigs of SSD goodness, and a whopping terabyte of transfer. They've also got hourly prices. Hey, maybe you just need some short-term compute. Uh, you know, something like this. I guess go flirt sometimes when your home computers aren't enough. For just 24 cents an hour, you can get 16 gigs of RAM, 8 cores, 160 gig disk and 6 terabytes of transfer that should be enough for just about any project that you're working on it's a great way to spin up you know hey you want to play with Nextcloud? you want to play with FreeBSD? you want to play with a linux distribution you've never played with before you're trying to play with the uh, you know kubernetes set up your own cloud cloud system what have you you're trying to replicate some attacks you want to play with sql injection digital ocean is a great playground for all those things plus they have things like snapshots so you can easily back up restore your system to a previous state after you've compromised it they make it so easy, especially, especially with their community page. DigitalOcean pays real editors to take contributions from the community and turn it into some of the best documentation on the internet. It's kind to of the point where, you know, you're just searching for any old how-to on a, on a Linux or BSD system, and, and nine times out of ten, you'll end up on DigitalOcean's awesome curated documentation. That's really what makes makes the difference. That and their amazing API. You can tell it's amazing because they use it for their UIs, for their tool sets, and the community uses it for a ton of great DigitalOcean apps. In fact, hey, it runs the it runs a bunch of stuff here at the JB Network, too. So it's super handy. You can control your droplets from your phone, from the command line. You can control them from your favorite uh, cloud assistant. It doesn't matter. That's the thing about DigitalOcean. They make it super easy to get started. In under 55 seconds, you'll have a brand new VPS of your very own. You can start playing with the API, start reading some communicatorials, And use our promo code SNAPOCEAN to get that $10 discount. Thank you very much to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And that brings us to the next segment of today's show. That's right, it's time for your feedback. First up in today's mailbag is a letter from Richard. Richard's writing to us about uh, discussing capacity planning with ZFS and snapshots. It's an interesting topic. Thank you for writing to us, Richard. He writes, without ZFS, it's easy. You can calculate your burn rate with observations over a few months and divide your free space by that amount. Here he means, you know, you can calculate how much you're using uh, and then kind of get an average, how much space you're averaging and averaging use. However, with ZFS and snapshots, deleting a file does not necessarily free up space. How can I estimate how much space is going to be freed up in 30 days, 90 days, 180 days from snapshots expiring to consider in my capacity planning? As an example, if someone deletes a 1 gigabyte file where the longest snapshot retention is 90 days, I know it will take 90 days for the space to become available, but how do I determine these events have happened? I need to forecast that the space I have left now, plus the space that will be freed up each week from expired snapshots will leave enough space available for day-to-day operations. And to detect an upcoming free space problem far enough in advance to allow time to procure new drives, install, and rebuild disk-by-disk with larger drives, as I don't have any additional drive base to work with. Typical management doesn't want to spend money up front to advert a problem. We have plenty of disk space at the moment. Amen there, Richard. And I can't state to management, based on our retention policies, we will run out of space in XX months. I feel like I won't see it coming until it's too late. Seems like Mm -hmm. there are all kinds of metrics that could be captured with snapshots and files. Awesome. All right. Well, let's uh, let's turn that right over to our friend Dan, the uh, BSD master.
1: You can you zfs destroy is what deletes old snapshots. So do a zfs zfs destroy minus n minus n for dry run. Do a dry run, no op deletion. No data will be de- deleted. This is, a useful, this is useful in conjunction with the minus V or minus P flags to determine what day, data would be deleted. Now, if you look at the minus P, it's print machine parsable verbose information about the deleted data. So you should be able to feed that into a script and say, oh, when we delete this snapshot in X weeks, it'll free up this amount of space. That right. might be useful.
0: You could then now, you could use that then yep. to do you know make some graphs and alerts based yep. on those to compute like all right well after this you know each cycle of dates here's how much would be freed here's how much will be remaining if we haven't changed yep. anything else.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, I have since I remembered this bit of information, uh, I haven't had opportunity to try it on a machine to see what the actual output it was, but I remember Alan Jude telling me about some. Uh, flag that would tell you how much is going to be destroyed. And I think it would... I, I'm quite sure it was this this one here. So if not, give it
0: a, Maybe Alan will write in and tell us how wrong we maybe are. Maybe he
1: will. Maybe he will. Maybe he will. Awesome. But yeah, try that one. I, I, would, I would say that a really good snapshot tool would have something like this built in to say, okay, you've got this much saved. This mm-hmm. is how much is going to come for you later. But... That sounds like a whole graphing thing. I wouldn't be. It's. It almost sounds like you want, Like there's a market for a third party tool to to say how much. Yeah.
0: Snapshots. Yeah. Some extra value you have here out. of managing mm-hmm. your snapshots, capacity planning, all that kind of stuff, on top of the primitives that ZFS yep. provides.
1: And like you said, graph it over time. Uh, there's some good snapshot tools that say uh, that add to the snapshot attributes to the file system that say this is supposed to be retained this long. I don't oh, remember nice. the name yeah. of the tool that, that Alan uses that does this, but it sounds very good. Or it might be Mark Feld. One of them uses a, t- a snapshot tool that that adds attributes to the snapshot file system for retention values and stuff like that.
0: Well, this seems like an excellent idea for a future deep dive mm-hmm. about snapshots, retention, and a mm-hmm. related material. Yes, Awesome. Well, thank you very much for writing in, Richard. Let us know if that works for your use case or if you find something else. Okay, up next is a letter from our friend Laszlo. He writes about a cheap but very good managed switch. In a recent episode, a listener was asking about a low-cost managed switch. I recommend giving a try to Mikrotik's network gear. Mikrotik is a big name in Europe. The company is from Latvia. I've used many of their routers at home and in an enterprise environment as well. Feld said in U.S. in the past he had issues with them. Dan knows who Feld is. I think you just mentioned him, didn't you, Dan? Yep. Um, I have a U.S. market Microtech RB951. Oh, $45. Hey, that is very reasonable, right in the price range we're thinking about here. He's been using it at home for two years, so far with no issues at all. It has a lot of features. Perhaps a home user will never use all of them. It takes some time to learn, but using it isn't very different. It's managed like any other professional network device. It can be accessed by SSH, web, and their own software which run on Windows, but can be easily ported to OS X. And then for more, he provides some links to uh, Microtik as well as Amazon.com. Yeah, interesting. Oh, so that's the, uh, is that the router board model line, I wonder? I know I've looked a little bit at uh, Microtik devices as well. Let's take a look here.
1: And while that's loading up, full disclosure, I work with Mark and and Feld, the two people uh, mentioned that. Sorry, I work with Laszlo and with Feld.
0: Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So these do look pretty neat. Um, you know, I've heard I've heard good things about RouterOS. Um, I've I've looked into. I don't have a managed switch at home right now, but boy, especially you, after this, you may days, soon. I may soon, especially at those at these prices. You know, like I'm I'm willing to spend a little bit, and I have that new Unify, and so it would be nice to take my, you know, take my network gear up to the next level, and then just kind of have some network infrastructure I can depend on for the next like five years. Yep. Awesome. There you go. All right. Well, thank you, Laszlo, for writing in. That's uh, that's great. And uh, please keep these coming. I, I'm, you know, I haven't made the decision yet. So if anyone else has any awesome network switch ideas, I think we'd love to hear about it. On to our final piece of feedback this evening. That's from Aaron. Aaron's writing to us about ButterFS and net neutrality. Hey, Dan and Wes. I love you with every part of my body, but I'm willing writing to voice not one but two unpopular opinions. First, I want to say that I'm a bit leery of net neutrality. Don't get me wrong, I don't want ISPs or backbones giving preferential treatment to partners. On the other hand, I don't know how much I want the FCC involved with the internet, given their penchant for limiting free speech on other platforms like TV and radio. Not to mention the current political environment, which is beginning to incline towards limitations on speech from both sides of the aisle. I don't want the internet to become like TV and radio. The thing is, net neutrality doesn't strike at the root of the problem, which is the monopoly that a few companies have on the internet. A monopoly which is reinforced by regulation. I think if the regulations that favor the incumbent in the ISP market were removed, net neutrality would cease to be a concern, or at least would be much less important. Competition is the cure. Sorry to get political. Dan started it. I agree that with things as they are, net neutrality is important, but it's just propping up a fundamentally broken system. Second thing. I've been using ButterFS for years on personal machines and reaping the benefits of copy-on-write, snapshots, soft raid, checksums, and free compression for years. It's the default on OpenSUSE, and nobody in that camp seems to have any problems. There are a few things they say not to do, and have always said not to do. Most famously, don't use RAID 5 or 6. So I buy more disks. No big deal. Though I do think this feature should be disabled by default if it's as potentially destructive as they say. Second, don't use the check command on an FS that isn't broken. Just scrub it to validate integrity. Sure, ButterFS can get slow as you begin to reach disk capacity, and you need to have some hygiene about snapshots and metadata to keep that from happening. But if you treat your ButterFS partitions right, you get a lot of goodness at a much lower performance cost than ZFS. That said, can someone please explain to me what happened that made everyone so paranoid about ButterFS? I don't know. I never have any problems. Maybe it's just me. XOXO, Aaron. Well, thanks for writing, Aaron, even when you have opinions that, hey, maybe we don't agree with, maybe we do. Uh, I think it's awesome to be able to have this dialogue, you know, between you, our audience and us. Uh, so I'll just take this uh, to turn it right here. Dan, would you like to comment about his first point?
1: Yep. Um, the claim that we don't need to regulate it because the providers will do it right if there's competition, I take issue with that. Um Look at the vehicles that are manufactured for sale in countries that do not have uh, collision uh, standards. You know, like the the, the five-star rating that, that cars sold in the U.S. and Canada get in terms of different collision tests. If you look at the cars that are sold uh, or manufactured specifically for other markets, such as China, for example. This is the post I saw recently. Those cars perform terribly poorly in collisions. Why? They make them that way because it's cheaper and they can sell them that way. Why do these regulations exist? Because people thought it was a good idea for us not to die in car accidents. So they put those in and the car manufacturers have to conform in order to sell stuff here. As demonstrated by Uh, The cars that are designed for sale in in that other country, they don't do it because they don't have to and it's cheaper for them not to. So that's my claim as to why regulation is needed, because it's pretty clear that when the big ISPs can get away with it, they will get away with it. Uh, Introducing more competition isn't enough because... The smaller competitors just basically can't do it anyway. Sorry, that doesn't hold water. No, they're, 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 whether you're big or small, you're not, you're not going to f- follow net neutrality unless it's forced upon you. That's been demonstrated several times by different players in the market. And the one that I want to mention is net, Netflix's, uh, Netflix being asked to pay money in order for us to pay, carry their content. I'm sorry, but Netflix is not your customer. I'm your customer, and if I want to take content from Netflix, I've already paid for, for that delivery. So you should just be delivering it and not throttling them because you want them to pay for more of your infrastructure. You can't double dip. You can't double dip for the suppliers of the data and the people right. that are consuming the data. So that's my claim as to why net neutrality is needed.
0: So I, I do sympathize with them th- some things. Obviously, we don't have the ideal system. I also don't want to see you know the internet become too much like, um, you know, over the air TV and, and the way that's regulated. But I, I don't I don't see that as the direction that it would would go even if net neutrality were to get strong support, which obviously it, it doesn't really have under the current um, political regime Uh but I also think that like competition that we could definitely use with more competition, that would be good as well. But then we're really relying on the marketplace to you know to have the right incentives. So like you were talking about there, I think that's a perfect example. Yeah, people want, you know, safe cars, but a lot of times, especially in the world we live in, you know, you're going to choose the cheapest option that you think can get you by. And if it has, you know, they market it as safe, but there's no real guarantees that it's safe. I mm-hmm. they could see the same thing happening to Internet. And a lot of, you know, we, we th- like to think that because, sure, our audience, us, we would try to choose and support with our money, the, you know, the companies that weren't doing these kinds of behaviors that we didn't like but we are a small minority out of all the consumers who are you know accessing the internet and most people don't care and if they just get a better deal or a cheaper deal or it gets them free data or free streaming then yep. that's still what they're going to pick and we're going to be right in the same boat uh as for uh butter so I think, I think you're right uh. that, like, you know, ButterFS, you can certainly use it day-to-day without any problems. Uh, it is a godsend just to have uh, copy-on-write and snapshots. I do use it on systems. It's really handy, uh, especially for, you know, you're just playing around. It's handy for containers. It's handy for root rootFS. Um, I, I think the biggest problem is, I mean, it's, it's kind of multifold. One, you know, CFS was able to be worked on before it was open-sourced and put out there um, behind closed doors at Sun for a long time. And it reached a really stable uh, you know, a stable place before it was seen heavy deployments outside of that. Um, Butterfest didn't really have that. Secondly, I think when Butterfest came out, there was a lot of excitement, rightfully so. Uh, but there was kind of some like some fanboyism. There's a little bit of you know bad blood between the ZFS license and Linux community, and and how that should work, as well as you know just like some sometimes unfortunately, like the BSD community and the, and the Linux community trying to compete with each other, and you know BSD, Illumos, all those things. They've got the first class ZFS support. I think we're probably rightfully a little jealous of that. So there was ButterFS for at least a while. It really was billed as this, you know, it could be a replacement. Some of its design architecture is a little more flexible. It has some different features, some neat things that ZFS doesn't have. Um, So I think there was some of this, like, excitement, like, oh, well, we don't need your ZFS. We've got ButterFS. And it just hasn't really been proved out that way. It does work very well for a lot of use cases, you know, on your laptop file system, day-to-day use, whatever. But it has not become the kind of enterprise, reliable storage appliance that really is where ZFS shines the most these days. Uh, so I think that's where a lot of it comes from. It's not that you can't use SpiderFS; It's just that it hasn't become this, like, all-in-one, wonderful file system that you, you can use for so many things and have really absolute trust in. Plus they've had some kind of bad PR or m- botched marketing in the ways that they've marketed it. Like you said like they don't disable things when they're broken, so there's some communications on a wiki that's maybe infrequently updated. So it's just not managed in a way where, you know, it gives casual end users a lot of confidence. I feel very confident I can install ZFS, install it, get it set up, follow some simple guides and not break things or lose data, and I'm not quite sure that's true for the average person trying to come to ButterFS and using some of the advertised features. So keep using it. I'm glad that you haven't had any problems. I'm glad that people are adopting it and that it gets more advancement, but I don't see it ever really becoming uh, a competitor to ZFS in the same way in the enterprise storage market. Any thoughts uh, on your side about that, Dan?
1: Um, I'm biased. Uh, I'm not sure the performance uh, cost difference between the two operating systems is very significant because he actually said at a much lower performance cost than ZFS... I don't think that's true. I don't have anything to back it up. I don't think that's true.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think I think to, you'd need some, you know, it is really easy to run Butterfest. It is really easy, especially on Linux, because it's in the kernel and those sorts of things. So there's some, like, lower barriers that way. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And I know people yep. like to talk about the memory usage of ZFS, but I think, you know, there's there's plenty of sysctls and other options to tune that and control it. So yeah. I think for that, we'd have to see some real data about, like, you know, here's my constraint system. Here's the same workload on both file systems. Here's how they performed over X amount of time. And then maybe we could have a, a discussion about it. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. That's right. It's the Roundup, the time in the show where we cover some stories we didn't have enough time in the main segment, but they're still interesting. We're still fascinated by them. Let's get into it. What do you have for us right now, Dan?
1: So we've got a a stream of Twitter posts from a chap who uh, used to be Unix admin for a bunch of DoD uh, systems. Oh, interesting. And the government wouldn't let him make a bunch of changes to secure them. So the default configs were so bad that they were crashed without needing to be exploited. They were just bad. So out of the 50 boxes, one never had any problems. It ran perfectly without the need for intervention unlike the others. So s- since he figured it was a blessed configuration, he should find out what was going on. And so he, he get into the box and discovered it had been compromised and was being used to distribute it Distribute pirated software. They had also patched the vulnerabilities he wasn't allowed to fix. How ironic. And I remember talking about this last show about when systems are compromised, they often patch them in order to stop them from being compromised by other people. Um, So his response um, was to request that the government allow their other systems to be compromised. (laughs) <laughs> so, so so that they could be fixed that's amazing and um where was it? and basically they had to put the server down in order to save it is what someone else said so um yeah um that really didn't work
0: no, not at not at all. That's 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 funny. But sometimes, like you are in those positions, and you know, like you have these very ossified policies, you are just not allowed to make any kinds of changes. So it's oh, yeah. it's 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 so funny that, like, yeah, well, someone else is going to do it for us, guys, and you
1: might no. not like the results. No, we're 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 going to have to do so much testing with this new version.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's amazing. I am going to have to I am going to have to follow him for some more of those good good stories. Yes. Okay. Up next, we've got cloak and dagger cloak and dagger is a new class of potential attacks affecting android devices these attacks allow a malicious app to completely control the ui feedback loop and take over the device without giving the user a chance to notice the malicious activity that sounds bad
1: Mm. it it seems to be these attacks require two permissions that in case the app is installed from the app from the play store the user does not need to explicitly grant And for which the user is not even notified. So our user study indicates that these attacks are practical. These attacks affect all recent versions of Android, including the latest, Android 7.1.2, and they are yet to be fixed. Yep. So mm, mm, mm. Um, if there doesn't seem to be any way around it, really. It just sort of happens. The postulate the possible attacks include advanced clickjacking, constrained unconstrained keystroke recordings, stealthy phishing, the silence and sla- the silent installation of a god mode app with all permissions enabled, and silent phone unlocking plus arbitrary actions while keeping the screen off. So unlocking the phone with arbitrary actions while keeping the screen off is sort of like, let's listen to what's being said. Yes, it is. Wow. So they did a study with 20 human subjects and no user understood what happened. Most of these attacks are due to design issues and to date, all these attacks are still practical. To see which versions of Android are affected and responsible disclosure, look below. And which versions are affected? It's Android 5.1, Android 6, and Android 7. And basically, they're all vulnerable. And there was a partial fix on Android 7.1.2, but it's not quite completely fixed.
0: Yeah, they've got some other things here, you know, like what do they think Google should do, as well as what's Google's official Mm -hmm. reply been? Sounds like, um, you know, they're trying to build some more protections into the next, into Android O. But uh, yeah, for the moment, these things are still vulnerable. So it's good to be aware of. Uh, Try to stay safe. And as always, Android is unfortunately sometimes a risky platform.
1: It's a great platform, but send us updates, patch it patch it exactly patch
0: your s or hopefully they'll patch their s and then we can patch Mm -hmm. our s i don't know something Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. i'm confused all right on to the next story a major incident at capital data center multiple services still knackered still on need some 36 hours later yeah uh
1: this came in to us uh via feedback and someone said um they work at a company they're not allowed to – they didn't want to tell us uh, which company. Naturally, But basically, they hadn't done anything for two days. Just nothing they could do. Um, so, this sounds like a really big deal, especially since it includes the NHS. NHS in, in, um, in England is the National Health Service, uh, which is a big deal. You don't want that gone offline.
0: No, you do not. Those are, you know, those are serious social services that can really impact people. So that's unfortunate. But it does, you know, it goes to show you we, we just place how much kind of like we talked about at the top of the show, how much, you know, we do rely on these data centers. Um, you know, they're very solidified things. They're like one place runs a whole bunch of services. You can have things like power outages, grid failures, or just random equipment failures that can really bring down a whole lot of operations.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I'm getting mixed messages from from this post. So one was an off-site power failure, and then they talk about um, a virtualization platform due to a technical fault in one of our data centers. Some clients are experiencing issues. Blah 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 blah. But they also talk about they probably had to fly in parts from out of the country as the infrastructure is so old. I see. But that that sounds like sour grapes. So I'm not really sure. <sighs> According to rumor, there's a power failure in West Malling, and the generators failed, shutting down the whole data center. Yikes. So, Ugh. yeah, you gotta got to test your power.
0: Test your backups, test your redundant power supplies. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm, Yikes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll
0: just say I'm glad I don't work there right now.
1: I'm glad it's not me affected by this. This <laughs> yeah. would be horrible. Exactly.
0: Uh, everyone be thankful to their service yes. providers.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: All right. That brings us to the last story of today's roundup. 83% of security staff waste time fixing other IT problems. You know, this just, I haven't, I'm not even reading the article. This just sounds oh so plausible. You know, a lot of people don't necessarily understand where the, the divisions here are. There's a lot of IT brokenness in general. Uh, but boy, that is not a great use of security researchers' time.
1: No, no. Um, I remember working for one company that as it was being prepared to be sold, this this wasn't in the past few years, as it was being prepared to be sold, they started cutting back on a lot of expenses. And they removed the, the people that used to come around and clean the kitchens and re- restock all the coffee and tea and stuff like that. And so they just said, well, we're going to take turns. Uh, The staff is going to do this, which I found incredible. You're you're paying people, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month in order to clean the kitchen. I don't really see the savings here. Yeah,
0: that's really not a great use of, you know, it seems like that kind of short-sighted accounting where, yes, right now, immediately it does save you maybe a little bit of money. But in the long run, no.
1: But it's a saving. They just want to get the savings on the book, exactly, so so that they can sell themselves off to another buyer. That that was the only reason they did it. I see. And what was particularly a sour taste in my mouth there was the fact that they wanted people who didn't use the kitchen to clean the kitchen.
0: (laughs) Uh, So everyone gets a hand in the chores.
1: There, everyone gets a hand in the chores. I didn't drink coffee or tea at that time.
0: Yeah. Well, then you just have to start, right? And just uh...
1: Yep. <laughs> uh, it was interesting. That's too bad.
0: Yeah, so they, these guys, it uh, looks like they surveyed uh, some organizations. 8% of professionals surveyed, helping colleagues out of five hours a week or more. It could be costing over $400,000. They're potentially paying qualified security professional salaries upwards of $100,000 a year and seeing up to 12.5% of that investment being sent being spent on non-security-related activities. Yikes. Yeah, it really just hmm. goes to show, you you know, people People don't really understand uh, IT or security, and it's it's not getting a lot better. Um, hopefully, this report will shed some light and, you know, give some backbone to people who need to stand up and say, like, no, listen, these are not my responsibilities. Here's really what's important to the organization. And hopefully, you can draw a line in the sand and, yep. uh, you know,
1: do what you need your to do. Ma- your manager should be helping with that. Yes. When you say, hey, no, sorry, I can't do that because I've been asked to do this. Get a ticketing system in. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. As always, you know, cover your own ass, um, document things that you do and, and show that your time is, you know, show that your time is being mm-hmm. wasted or not utilized mm-hmm. effectively. And try yep. to make an economic argument, because that's always the most effective.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Awesome. All right. Well anything else you'd like to share with our wonderful audience today?
1: No. That's everything.
0: Awesome. All right. Well then, this has been episode. 322 of the TechSnap program, streamed live on May 31st, 2017. If you'd like to see more of our program, head on over to JupiterBroadcasting.com. There you'll find our contact page, as well as the show archives, the calendar, and the live stream. Oh, just so much good stuff. If you'd like to see even more, go to techsnap.reddit.com, or you can find us both on Twitter. I am at Wes Payne. He is at TechSnap underscore Dan. Stay tuned, and uh, we'll see you next week we uh-huh.